Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How's it going, everyone? Um, yeah, as um, Brandon mentioned, my name's Mu Yu, and I've been in the industry for a little bit over 15 years now. Um, mostly I've been a gameplay programmer, but I do wear lots of different hats uh, at different times, and I'll kind of get onto that um, as we go on. And I don't need to do too long of an intro, because basically the whole talk is a giant long intro. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, let's get started. Um, I guess the question that I found myself thinking about is just, do I belong in the industry? And it's a question I constantly end up asking myself. Um, and as time goes on, I feel like what it means to me changes dramatically, but I'm always trying to think of, do I belong in this industry or should I go do something else? Is it welcoming to me? That kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm going to talk about some of the times I've asked the question, how it's changed throughout my career and some of the things and actions I've taken to adapt to the industry. Um, so, you know, we got to start at the beginning. So the first time I found myself asking the question if I belonged in the industry was right after my Insomniac Games interview. It was finals week in college. I was, you know, I just spent two hours in their offices and I was blown away. It was really magical. And I just thought there's got to be some way that I can be part of this thing. Um, but at the same time, I could see like how competent they were and how smart everyone was. And I just felt like there's no way they're going to let me join this company. Um, so yeah, I, I remember that eerie feeling and I, I remember it was really punctuated because I, I mean, I'll tell the long story another time, but I accidentally almost stole a car on my way back to getting home. Um, and that was really, really weird, but it was just a really surreal experience. Um, but the thing I wanted to focus on is that the first time I was asking, do I belong in the industry? It was a question that I was asking other people to answer. You know, it wasn't something I was thinking about myself or anything. It was very much, um, what does Insomniac Games think and do they think that I'm a fit for their company and the industry? Um, it was completely out of my hands and it was a really, you know, I guess natural place to be, but it was definitely powerless um, from my perspective. And when I look back on it now, it really seems like something, an attitude that is a little bit dangerous at times because, you know, having that mentality, you'll work on any project, you'll work on, you know, pretty much anything, you'll work crazy hours, you'll do things that maybe you shouldn't be doing if you were thinking about yourself. Um, but yeah, I was lucky enough that they did, you know, let me, you know, come on to work on Ratchet and Clank. Um, I didn't get the position I applied for, but they gave me a different one. Um, and it was cool. Like four days later, I walked into the Insomniac offices. I sat down at my desk and I felt like this is crazy. Like I, I feel like I belong in this industry. Like they welcomed me in. I've kind of got past the gates. Um, but then I started trying to work. <laughs> um, and I thought I was a pretty good programmer at college. You know, like I, I taught a lot of people other stuff. Like I was usually the lead of my project, um, but I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I really, really struggled for the first week. And then the second week I struggled even more. And the third week was terrifying. Um, I remember I came in on the Monday of the third week and two of us had been hired at the same time, the guy that got the position I applied for and me. And I come in on the third week and he's gone. And I just, I didn't even know what to think. Um, and I asked what happened. They said, you know, they had to let the guy go because he just wasn't keeping up with, you know, the rate of technology and how fast it was moving. And they just thought that he was sort of left behind. And that terrified me. Just the idea that I just got in the industry and I didn't realize that at any point the industry can just move out from under you. Um, and that really defined my thinking of my first couple of years in the industry. Um, so yeah, two weeks later, um, I find myself thinking like my version of do I belong in the industry now is constantly thinking, am I good enough skill wise? Am I staying ahead of the curve? Am I learning things fast enough? Um, and the terrifying afterthought is like, even if that's true now, like how long is that gonna last? Um, so I really became obsessed with becoming the best programmer that I could be. Um, but I think the, the 
the good thing is that I was asking a question of myself, but I think the bad thing was that I was very much defining myself in terms of what the industry needed from me and specifically what Insomniac needed of me. And it wasn't that they wanted anything bad of me, but it was just that I was very much in the mindset of just serving someone else. And I think that gets a little bit dangerous. And for me, where it started getting a little bit, the table started turning a little bit and I started thinking a little bit more um, was I gotten, or one of my friends got in contact with me. And I, I call him my friend, but this guy was like eight years older than me. Um, and we went to church together when I was a kid and I always looked up to him. And I, you know, one of the reasons I had interest in programming was that he became a professional programmer. And my parents told me that he was making lots of money and it was great. And when I started Insomniac, he was sort of like, um, oh my God, how did you get this amazing job? I really look up to you, can you help me out? And I was like, you've been programming for like 10 years. What, what do you mean? I don't understand. Um, and he explained to me that, you know, he had a job at a government agency where they did a very narrow thing. And the first year, you know, he was learning all kinds of new things on how to do the kinds of simulations that they were doing. Um, but for the last nine years, he was just kind of doing the one year of experience 10 times. And I just thought, you know, it, it really, you know, really hit me because I just worked on, you know, Ratchet and Clank 3, Ratchet and Clank 4, Ratchet and Clank 5. I started thinking, like, am I really learning new things anymore? Like, am I still developing? Because, you know, in the back of my head, there's that there's that industry that's going to slip out from under you. That's the thing that's constantly terrifying me. Um, and I just felt like I can't do this. Um, like, I feel like I'm just going to get left behind if I just keep, you know, typing out ratchet games. And I had a friend that yeah, basically called it that. He's like, it's typing time. You're not really thinking anymore about how you're developing things or what you're doing. You're just typing the game you already know how to do. And so the obvious thing would have been for me to move on to a game called Resistance. Insomniac was also developing this first-person shooter that was like, you know, realistic graphics for the PlayStation 3, PlayStation 3 launch title. Um, and I thought about that for one second, and immediately something inside of me was just like, no, you don't want to work on resistance. And it was it was weird. Like, I, it just hadn't occurred to me that until that point that I really should be thinking about what do I want to work on. Um, so I found myself thinking, well, <clears throat> Insomniac is definitely something I'm going to have to move on to. Um, but I have all these other questions about, like, is this sustainable for me? Where do I want to go? And one of the questions I was asking is like, is it possible for me to have a life and make games at the same time? I was working just crazy hours at Insomniac and they would ramp up at the end of each year when we want to release the game. And one of the side effects of that is any friends that I made around, you know, July to September, I would disappear for three months and then come, you know, the, the next couple of months, it's time to make new friends because everyone's already, you know, forgotten me. Um, so that was one big question that was on my mind. The second thing is like, can I actually develop as a programmer? Um, like, can I find somewhere where I can keep learning more about programming and, you know, fight that curve and prevent the, the industry tidal wave from crashing on me? Um, and I wasn't sure, um, but like I was, I think that was the one I was most optimistic about. Um, but the thing that I thought was most interesting was that I started thinking about, like, do I want to make the games that the industry wants me to make? And that actually was a line in the sand for me. Um, and I think, I, I mean, you'll see very shortly that I was very much tested on this. And I, I think the decision that I made is, like, I need to find somewhere that I can keep learning to program better. And then I need to work somewhere where I'm not making, basically, murder simulators. Um, and so those are the two ground rules I set for myself to like find a place in the industry. And like, it may have been just the worst time possible to grow a backbone. Um, Cause I asked around all the LA studios and saw, checked out what they were working on. Everyone's working on, you know, games where you have assault rifles or pistols at the very least, and you're shooting people. Um, and I asked around, you know, some more studios in California. And like, I talked to recruiters that did like sort of like a nationwide search for me. And every project was, you know, some kind of gray or brown shooter. I think it was the year that like, Half-Life 2 came out and Doom 3 and Gears of War and, you know, even like I think they just released a Halo and didn't make another one for ages. Um, so I think at that point I kind of thought maybe maybe the games industry isn't for me. Um, and I just kind of resigned myself to start looking for jobs elsewhere. Um, but luckily um, I got bailed out um, because 
at GDC 2007, Little Big Planet was announced, and one of my friends happened to have a connection there, and it was just the perfect game. Like in in the same way that Viscerally Resistance was a game, like I knew I didn't want to work on Little Big Planet was everything I was hoping for. Um, so you know, it was creativity, it was cooperation, it was you know really lovely in terms of like the vibe and the bright colors. And so um, I luckily got a meeting with uh, the Media Molecule team at E3 when they were in town in LA. And, you know, luckily for me, they, they wanted me to join their team. So I packed up my bags and moved to the UK, where I still am now. Um, and I joined the Little League Planet team. And it was just an amazing experience. I mean, it was like, I think about like when I went from thinking I was a smart guy in college and going to Insomniac and being definitely the dumbest person in the room. Um, it was that again. Um, and so just, you know, being full in a room full of talent was really inspiring. I learned so much about programming, but I think because of the creative tools we we're developing and also because I was able to sit um, in the game designer area, um, I learned actually, it wasn't the programming skills that were going to get me to my next step in my career. Like I very much realized that, you know what, like, it's how I interact with people and it's how I take the time to understand what a game designer is trying to do or, you know, what an artist is trying to do with a feature and like, how can I make the tools that make their lives easier or make the tools that match the way that they think about their creative process. Um, so yeah, I had a really great time working on Little Big Planet. Um, and lo and behold, there's a pattern in the industry. They said, oh, and we're gonna start working on Little Big Planet 2. And I immediately just thought back to what my friend had said about you know, the same year of experience 10 times. I just thought, okay, um, I need to move on, but I'm really inspired by what they've done. And so, you know, I started thinking again, okay, this is the time that I was just like, okay, well, I saw what they did and it really made me think, I can't just think about what I don't want to work on. I need to think about what is the actual change I want to have, you know, like what are the games I actually want to make? And instead of like, where the last step was, okay, what does the industry happen to be making? Do I want to make that? I started thinking about, well, like, how can I make the industry want the games I want to play uh, and the games I want to make? And I think that was really important for me because I, I just thought back to that situation where I was sort of at the whim of the industry that if they, if, if I hadn't met the media molecule founders, I would have just left the industry. And I think there's so many talented, creative, interesting people that, you know, would be interested in the industry and would have come around looking at that time and just found a bunch of murder simulators and realized, oh, you know what, this is an industry for me, I'm moving on. Um, so I, th I just thought about how much talent we're losing and how, how, I guess, powerless I felt in that situation. So I started thinking about what are the kinds of games that I want to make? Um, and so uh, I guess the main thing was like, I was focused on themes, you know, like I was focusing on how do I make a game with positive themes that engage new audiences? Because I guess the other part of it is that I felt like if I don't make the games that appeal to new types of players, I'm not going to be able to continue to make games that appeal to new types of players. Like, it, you know, at the end of the day, it is the games industry and it is a business. And so for me, it was trying to think about how do we make the games that draw in new types of players to ensure that we can make a more broad range of games in the future? And I thought back to the Media Molecule founders and what they did, and I just thought, yeah, it was just amazing. You know, they came together, they decided what game they wanted to make, they made it, uh, it was hugely profitable, um, and it was, you know, a huge cultural success. And I thought, well, I guess the way they did that was they started a company. So I decided, Time to start a company. Uh, so I started a Facebook games company um, and we made a game called Monstrosity. And it was a game about nurturing little monsters. It was about playfulness and growth and creating safe environments for role play. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed working on it. Um, and it's interesting because I always talk about this like it was like this massive disaster. Um, but actually, I think. I think there were a lot of things that went right. I mean, I think there's a lot more things that went wrong, obviously, and I'll get to that. Um, but it was an interesting experience. I think, you know, it wasn't sustainable as a company, um, and we ended up having to shut it down. Um, and it was, you know, incredibly stressful. I think the one thing that I, I remember the day I made the decision, and it was like, as a small team, 
I came to work and the first thing I did was like, I checked all the community messages and responded to them. Then I started working on some features that were requested. Um, and then I started doing like some of the backend programming because it was easier at that point for me to do the backend programming than to ask um, our backend programmer. And then I had to like do like our business development stuff. I was, you know, had pitches and phone calls to answer. Um, and then I was doing QA on the features I just done. And I had a freelance artist that I was art directing um, and it was just it was way too much for me and I just couldn't sustain it and like every time we released new updates like the revenue wasn't growing and wasn't growing and like the, the unsustainability of the business met the unsustainability of my stress and um, I decided that we just had to shut the whole thing down um, and so interestingly like after a failure like that um you think that i was ready to leave the industry again and i was you know contemplating my state of existence um and i just you know would be in this state again where i'm just like what am i doing do i belong here um but actually i, I wasn't asking it at that moment and i think the reason was kind of interesting like i think firstly like it was a failure, but there were positives. Like we had millions of players, we were making some money, not enough, um, and I didn't have enough help. But one thing that was really nice about not having enough help is that I got to try on so many different hats. Um, and there's a lot of nice things about like being a small company and having to wear a lot of hats. And the first thing is that you just appreciate everyone that normally wears those hats. Like I think before then there's times where I'm like, ah, oh, this department, they're not pulling their weight or their job's easy. Why are they making my life so hard? And really everyone's job is hard. And I think it took trying to do a lot of those jobs to make me realize that. Um, and I think the other thing is that because I had such a huge appreciation for some of these roles, like it made me just start appreciating that so much more and the people I met and it started making me build a community of people that were really good at doing the things that I was really, really bad at. Um, but the other side of things is that there were a lot of things, hats that I was wearing that I wasn't so bad at and especially some that I was really surprised by. Um, I think community management was something that I was surprisingly not bad at and I really enjoyed. And despite being a programmer who usually is terrible at anything social, that was a big surprise to me. Um, and I think I never would have gone down that route if it, if I wasn't forced to. And I'm really glad that I did because it's something I really enjoy doing um, even to this day. Uh, but the other one was business development. I just thought, you know, business development is for, I mean, I, I thought business development for white was white guys who could chat really loud. Um, and I actually, you know, that wasn't my brand of it, but you know, when we were running the company, I got very close to raising money. And I think there was a point where, you know, I was talking to VCs and they seemed really interested, but I didn't have the confidence that I could move forward um, and continue running the company, even if I had funding that I just thought, you know, it's not really worth pursuing these avenues and pitching. Um, but I wanted to get better at business development and running a business. Um, I just wasn't sure how. Um, so I think I was, I didn't want to leave the industry because I thought there's this thing I'm really excited about um, and I want to learn more about it. And so I needed to train up. And like, I guess this is sort of where I would have like cut together a montage if I had any video editing skills. Um, and I actually, you know, have tried to edit videos and it's one of those examples of things that you try and realize you're terrible at. Um, so yeah, there's no montage video here. But I started thinking about like, what was it that helped me develop my programming skills early in my career? And could I replicate that same thing for um, business development? And I, the, the thing that I realized is, so when the guy, when I came back and that seat was empty, um, I freaked out because, um, you know, that guy got fired. He had way more experience than I did. Um, but then, you know, an hour or two later, someone moved into that seat and that person actually ended up being my mentor for the next two or three years and taught me, you know, almost everything I know about game programming. Um, and the thing that I realized most about him was that he made sure that I had a safe environment where I could experiment with things and take risks and fail. Um, and he was a really, really important mentor to me. And, and, you know, the story I tell about like my fondest memory of the video games industry is still the time that we were trying to make this get, disc builds for Ratchet 3. It was the first, you know, game I'd ever worked on. And they're like, we're going to make disc builds. And for weeks, they were like, okay, we're going to try and make the first disc build. And every time they're like, oh, the disc didn't build, the disc didn't build. Um, and they'd be like, okay, we're making a disc build. Don't check anything in. We're making a disc build. And, you know, for two weeks, they'd been saying that. And 
I've never seen a disc and disc had never been made. And so, you know, again, they come through, say, don't check anything in. I check in stuff and lo and behold, the disc builds. Um, and the disc builds and they load up the disc and it crashes on load and it's the thing I just checked in. And I was petrified. And I just remember, uh, you know, this guy, my mentor, Tony, they come back and they're just like, who checked in code? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And Tony was just like, just go make another, just go make another, another disc. Leave us alone. Um, this, this shit happens all the time. Go away. And it was just such a, like, an eye-opening moment for me because, like, I felt like I was going to get fired. I mean, I, was always, I always felt like I was going to get fired. Um, I, uh, but you know, that Tony made sure that I was safe to take those risks and make mistakes. And he was always, always there to tell me, you know, what risks I took that were good and what risks I took that were bad. And, you know, I, it was pretty obvious to me when things paid off and when things blew up in my face as well. Um, so I think that's the thing. I think, you know, what I learned is that one, I had to really want, have a reason that I wanted to develop this skill and it's cause I didn't want to get fired. Um, and I had to be bad at it to learn to get better. Um, and I think one of the important things there is like that I think about now is that like there's times where I really want to develop a skill, but I don't actually try. I just do a bunch of research and I feel like that's valuable, but that's not growing. I think it's not until you're actually trying to do something and failing at something um, that you do grow. And, and given that, I think the only way to grow is to have an environment where you have mentors and where you can fail and where it's safe. Um, and so, yeah, I thought back to how I learned and developed my programming skills, and I thought I want to do that same thing for BizDev. Um, and lucky enough, um, there was a company that was working really closely with us when we launched our Facebook game because they hadn't launched yet, and they wanted uh, information about you know the, how they thought their launch was going to go. Um, and so they you know asked me a lot of things and asked me about a lot of the business decisions I was making, and you know gave me advice on things. Um, but they said, you know, they really valued me as a business person and they, they wouldn't bring me on as a full-time business person, but they'd bring me on as a programmer. And, uh, but they'd still involve me in all game design and all business decisions. And I think a lot of companies would say that to recruit someone and then just like bob them off when it came through. But like, really like this company was amazing to me. They were um, a Silicon Valley venture backed um, company. They'd raised something like two and a half million dollars or something like that for the seed round. Um, so, you know, it was really interesting for me to work with them and for them to let me try and make some decisions and try and contribute to the conversation and for them to mentor me and teach me what I was doing wrong and what why my first company failed. Um, and it was just, you know, an incredible opportunity for me. And it just makes me think about, you know, people that provide those safe spaces for people to grow. Um, and so, you know, I developed those skills and I thought I'm kind of at that point where I'm researching again and I'm not doing, and I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to try to test out my skills again. And I feel pretty good about my programming skills and I feel meh, okay about my business skills. Um, so it was time to try again. And that was Nights and Bikes. Um, so yeah, I was the sole programmer on the game. So I programmed the game, which had three different modes. One was that you could play single player with an AI partner. So the whole game had to work with either characters being AI. Um, and for momentarily moments where both of them are AI uh, from weird bugs that we found, um, where both players were controlled locally uh, for local co-op. And then for the version of the game that you could play online co-op. Um, so yeah, I think that was really an aggressive goal for me and I think it went well and I, you know, still feel pretty good about my programming skills and the business side, I think went well too. I think, you know, we ran a successful Kickstarter campaign. Um, we got a publishing deal shortly after that, we negotiated a book deal and three incredible books have come out. Um, so yeah, Nights and Bikes has three books based in this universe written by Gabrielle Kent and they're on sale now. Um, and we even signed like a deal for a TV series that's currently in development. So you know, I think all around I felt like, okay, my skills are developing at at a rate where I don't feel necessarily I need to like go back and find a safe space for growing my business skills. Um, like I, I feel pretty good about those two skill sets. Um, so you think like after a success like that, I'd be like, I of course I'd be long. I, you know, I'm awesome. I did everything. It was it was great and blah 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 blah. But like. I find myself again, like asking, is there a place for me in the industry? And it's, 
it's weird that like after my failure, I'm like, I definitely belong here. And then after my success, I'm like, uh, I don't really know. Um, but there's, you know, there's more to it. Like the first thing is that there's two things that have changed in, I guess, my life in the world. The first one is that last year my son was born. And as some of you can imagine, and some of you have experienced when you have a child, like all of your priorities get shifted, all of your available time gets eaten up and all of your financial risk to tolerance just vanishes poof in midair. Um, and so that's changed a lot about my perspective on, you know, how I can take creative risks and that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing is that my eyes were open to representation. Um, and I think growing up as, you know, in a Chinese person in the Western world, I just kind of thought they're never going to tell my story. Like I'm never going to actually feel represented in the media. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, every now and then something would come along and they'd be like, Oh, this is like the next big Asian film. And I'd watch it and I'm like, well, I don't really get it. Um, and, but what changed my mind first was a game called Florence. Um, I think it did an incredible job of, you know, packaging a universal story that everyone could understand with like specific details that are specific to Florence and her heritage. And I really felt those things really, really strongly. I was on a plane uh, back from GDC actually, and I was just crying my eyes out the whole time. Um, and more recently I saw the film uh, Tiger Tail on Netflix by um, Alan Yang. And how specifically it captured the Taiwanese American immigrant experience was mind blowing for me. Like if you would have told me that they had spies inside my house and captured the parent, the story of my parents, I would have believed you. Um, and I think actually feeling represented really opened my eyes to a lot of things um, to how important that is. Um, and I think representation matters for people you know, who aren't represented enough so that they don't feel alone. But I think, you know, we're seeing now more than ever that representation matters for everyone else. Just to remind, I mean, it's sad that it requires reminding, but to remind everyone that we're all human and we should all be treated as such. Um, and so those are the two things that are really on my mind now um, as a games person of just like, can I tell or can I make games that tell new stories? And can I do that without, you know, leaving my family uh, <laughs> abandoned on the street, basically? Um, so, yeah, it gets so complicated for me now because, you know, I guess the first question is, like, are there new stories that I can help tell? Um, you know, and it even makes me think, like, do I have a story to tell? Um, and I'm not really sure yet. Um, and it makes me think about like, well, are there people out there who want to work with me that have these stories that I could help tell? Um, but then there's the other side of like, you know, is there a financial balance for trying to change the industry and change the audience and build an audience um, without, you know, incurring the huge financial risk on myself? And I'm just getting older and older. And I think about how long, you know, I will, I've been working on Nights and Bites. And it makes me wonder, like, do I still have time um, to try to try to make these changes and to try and grow and try and learn the new skills I need? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm genuinely in a phase right now where I'm asking myself if I belong in the industry and I have some time to make the decision like one, like I'm not of sound mind. I'm not sleeping because the baby doesn't let me, um, but I still have some work on nights and bikes to finish up. So, you know, that's one thing to focus on. And I'm working also at a company where I do get to work with a writer and think about storytelling and the tools for storytelling and that kind of stuff. Um, so I don't really know yet, but I still have time to decide, I feel. Um, but what I do know um, is that, you know, I need to skill up on storytelling skills myself and the story or the skills required to help others tell stories. I need to find collaborators that have stories that they want to tell. Um, but more importantly, like it, it's really important to me to make sure to contribute to making the industry a place where more people feel like they belong because it's just a virtuous cycle. Like if we can't, you know, have the audience for interesting new games, then we can't have the people, the interesting new people to make them and like so on and so forth. And I just feel like, you know, that pinwheel has got to start somewhere. And one of the ways that I'm trying to help that out is I'm part of a group called Pock and Play. Um, we're based in the UK and we're dedicated to supporting people of color in the games industry. But there's so many great initiatives um, going on right now on that front that I feel like that's, you know, it's one of the things I do feel certain about um, in these really uncertain times. 
Um, but yeah, that's sort of where I am. I wish I could have um, finished it with something more concrete and inspirational, but I don't know what's in my future. But I think the point of this talk is that it's really important to take the time to think about yourself, where you fit in the industry, where you want the industry to grow, and what growth you need um, to make that happen. And, you know, and along with the growth you need, what environments you need to make that growth happen. So thanks for your time, everyone. All right, Mew. Well, thank you, man. Uh, it's been a no fantastic time. And, uh, you know, one of these things, being the first guy up, have always been a challenging <laughs> challenging proposition, but I think you did great. And I think your story especially is, is something um, that uh, that we all kind of look forward to as a game developer. Your journey is something very similar. Right? You're talking about all those times that you wanted to quit. I mean, during this stream, there were times that I wanted to quit. <laughs> <laughs> in the jitters out all the time it's always tough man it's always tough yeah, but like cool. as the day goes through and then not uh, getting the rhythm it gets easier so in the very very short way of kind of summarizing your experience in the game industry it feels a lot in that way we keep going back to it because at least for me I, I don't know what else to do man i'm not really good at anything i'm pretty useless <laughs> with my hands and uh and I, I just love game development. And, and it's one of the biggest reasons why, because I feel like I see professionals such as yourself who, who, who have figured out a way, right? Through this turmoil, through these confusion time, uh, confusing times, um, you, you've somehow kind of pieced together uh, a, a path for yourself and, 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 and just learn by stumbling, um, which is one of the yeah. biggest takeaway that I got uh, from your talk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the, the key is that like stumbling, I mean, stumbling is a privilege of sorts, right? Like I think like having the ability to do so is something that I'm very grateful for. And I actually think about, you know, the guy that taught me that lesson about the the one year of development 10 times is that, you know, he wasn't in a financial position where he could take a risk, where he could grow and learn and, you know, develop himself as a programmer and move to an industry like I did. Because, um, you know, he, he did get in touch with me throughout the years and he's always jealous of, you know, how I get to work in the games industry. And it's just a matter for him that, like, he needs his job and he can't take time off to, like, try and learn how to be a game programmer or anything like that. And I, I fully understand that it's a privilege I have, but I think, you know, it's a privilege I have, but hopefully I can use that privilege to, you know, make the industry, you know, less difficult to get into and more approachable for more kinds of people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm fixing my... Like, so I'm probably... <laughs> this is going to be so stupid throughout. <laughs> I'm popping in my other camera right now. Uh, but like, uh, for, just as a reminder, right? Just kind of go off what you're saying. For anybody that's in Discord, in the chat rooms, uh, this is a time for you to kind of ask directly to me. Well, through me, because I don't want... I don't want to fumble you up with with ridiculous questions. So I'm going to be filtering a lot of the questions throughout the three days. So we do have moderators going through all those chat rooms. You have something specific to talk to to me about. Uh, feel free to kind of drop a line and I'll, I'll try my best kind of read it online and on air. But uh, before that happens, you know, I have plenty of my questions uh, for myself and I kind of want to kind of dig through it, man. Like uh, you were mentioning a few years before you kind of found somewhat of a rhythm, you know, of course, your success now. I mean, you're doing this full time, which is a lot already. Um, how long was that process, man? Uh, if you were to say where you're, you started to have doubts and you started to explore to now, how long did it finally, not to now specifically, but to, to the point where you felt you, you hit a rhythm where you're like, I'm starting to understand business <laughs> and game development. Well, the, the business side is really hard because I think there's, there's two things to balance. I think, you know, learning the program was a lot easier because, you know, you eventually do find your brand of programming, but for the most part, you're just trying to become a better programmer. I think for me, when I got to the business side, there was a lot of trial and error of like what kind of business person I wanted to be. Um, you know, like I think, for example, one of the times I was, you know, trying to do networking and one of my friends invited me to a dinner um, that basically ended up in a strip club and like all this other stuff. And I was just like, ah, this is 
this can't be how business is done. Like this isn't the kind of business person I want to be. Um, and there's a lot of business people that, you know, are very fake it to the mid fake it till you make it, you know, like just lie and lie and lie through your teeth and hope that, you know, once you've got other people's money, you can profit off of it um, without losing it. But then if you lose it, it's their money. I think, I think the business world is a lot more complicated. And like, I, I would go to basically two events every single night for, I mean, probably, I think it was probably about six months, uh, not every night, but like probably three or four nights a, a week. And I'd be like, you know, practicing my pitch for my company, but trying to figure out like, oh, how are they pitching stuff? And what can I learn from them? And what do I like about what this person is doing and this person isn't? But I think also finding the other people you want to work on. I think for someone to invest money in someone takes a bit of a relationship. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, you're meeting these people and you're trying to prove to them that you're the same kind of business person with the same level of trustworthiness and the same kind of trust as them. And I think that takes a lot of time. So our publisher, Double Fine, you know, we've had a really good relationship with them personally for a long time. Like, you know, we, we actually struck the deal because Greg was sleeping on Rex's couch for Res, which is an indie event in London. And I have known Tim Schaefer because, you know, that time when I said in 2007, I couldn't find a single job opportunity that wasn't um, a first person shooter or some kind of shooter. I remember, I specifically remember this moment because I was on the Insomniac balcony, I was talking to a recruiter and he was just like, okay, well, the only game I have that's like not a shooter and I can't tell you where it's from or too many details, but it's like, you know, a heavy metal action RTS game. And he's like, what is that? What does that mean? And that turned out to be Brutal Legend. Um, but like, because like, I just had no idea, like I, you know, I'd always been in touch with him about working at Double Fine. And I think if they said Double Fine has a position open, <laughs> I definitely, I probably would have ended up in San Francisco instead of in Guilford. Um, but the guy just, you know, sometimes recruiters are not allowed to like give too many details of job opportunities away. And because he just described it so weirdly, I just kind of ignored it, <laughs> which is a shame. Mm-hmm. I, and it's one of those things too like you were talking about you know tim schaefer is definitely a legend within the industry and i think if anything he has a huge part to kind of kicking off this indie life that the possibility of yeah. not just scraping by but but also uh, having the ability to kind of go out there fend for yourself have a product and see it all the way through to 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 publishing and 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 reap yeah. whatever you know risks and benefits that entails and and I think um, it's crazy kind of thinking about the first Kickstarter that they kind of kickstarted Kickstarter, in my opinion. Right. And yeah, then to right. now where, yeah, where, where, where developers like yourself are, are finally uh, kind of uh, taking the torch uh, and, 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 and kind of carrying it yourself, uh, learning from these guys. And we're, we're talking about a short span of. I would say, like, what, within four or five years when the first major yeah. when they went that route. Right. Yeah, I think they they did it in maybe 2012, I think, and we did it in 2016. Um, and like, I think that was one of those things. Of like, we had a good relationship with them, and it made sense to end up that it ended up with our publisher. But like, for example, they offered to take a look at our Kickstarter campaign before it launched and give us advice on it. Um, so you know, the they were just a, a perfect example for me on many fronts. And one of them is like developers helping other developers. You know, they were really good about, you know, funding indie projects and like publishing indie projects, but also just helping lots of projects that they had no financial interest in just because, you know, they thought the idea was cool. And they've always put on like Day of the Devs, which is like a huge showcase of like indie games. Um, so I think, you know, they've always been somewhat a company that I've looked up to um, in terms of like what I want to do and how to how I can also have positive change in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've been, I haven't had my skin in the game as long as you have, you know, I'm still operating out of a Mattel room, right? <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> so uh, f- from the short time span that I've, I've been doing this, a lot of it has been about putting yourself out there to kind of have these doors open and not really knowing what the outcome in your life uh, or career is going to go like I did, I had like a faint idea when before I started where where uh, I, I wanted to go and, and be at this place. But then it wasn't really uh, really driven by experience or, or anything of that sort. It was kind of like make it up as I go. And and a lot of it was influenced by 
by by by by people who who who's kind of ahead of me and and just meeting them and just waiting and and making good you know uh not burning any bridges i i think <laughs> another part of that yeah. is that in, early in my career right uh, we would get these warnings from veterans uh, or experienced developers around us saying like, Hey, never burn bridges. You never know. Right. Yep. But then there was these times where I was like, you know, I'm going to, if you're going to burn bridges, I'm going to fucking burn it. Right. And I had like this little face <laughs> where I was like, you know, I'm s- fully committed. And then in full circle, I'm seeing myself as a veteran now and going on to, to create my own opportunities where I'm kind of going back to these burnt bridges and realizing oh wow you know i was really rash and short term in my thinking i mean i wonder if you had similar stories in that in in that mindset kind of like i i definitely agree like you shouldn't burn bridges unnecessarily but i definitely think there are times to burn bridges um and there's definitely times that i've burnt bridges that i wish i hadn't but there's also times i've burnt bridges where you know i you know i've dealt with people that I think are despicable and that nobody should work with them. And I'm happy I burnt those bridges and I'm happy that I've been able to warn people off of situations that they, that sound really enticing that they really wouldn't have enjoyed. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah, I definitely burned, you know, in my, in my early career, <laughs> I definitely burned a few bridges. I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, but one, one thing you say, like, sort of the idea of like, you know, going to these events, putting yourself out there and trying to like find the next generation to gatekeep you in. And the thing that I've actually learned is that it's your peers that are like the really interesting ones. Like, you know, uh, I was part of uh, a program here in the UK, part of um, BAFTA's program called Crew. And I remember when I joined Crew, there were so many like young, really full of energy, ambitious, excited people of saying like, oh, here's what I want to do. And one day I'm going to do this and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I was a little bit older, but I still like loved their energy and loved their enthusiasm. And now like I look at where all those are three or four years later and they're all in incredible positions and running like tons of programs that are helping other people get a leg up in the industry or um that kind of thing so i think you know never discount your peers i think your peers are the people that like one aren't going to look down on you um, and two that you can like really you can really vibe with them because you're in the same position and they're going to be the future of the industry and you know you can always hope that they'll bring you along with them yeah definitely i mean um at least for me man like uh i think there was a phase where you know i was really getting um anxious within the industry i was getting a little burnt out where there was a time where where uh i would see these guys um you know fresh blood (laughs) coming to the industry bright-eyed and there was kind of like a you know little lingering resentment right it's like oh my look at these kids look at these this energy right like uh they don't know right but then it it took a while where it finally felt like you know this is reinvigorating this is you know this kind of reminds me of how i was uh when 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 i was bright-eyed and 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 reminds me why i got in the industry in the first place so if anything it's a nice like full circle realization of you know uh there's there's always going to be things that's going to happen within your career where you're going to always look at what's the next best best thing but it's also very um healthy to kind of reflect on where you are right now i mean we're making games this is a, a literally a dream of ours since kids and you know especially where you are right now you you've able to kind of evolved and 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 taken control and 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 instead of complaining you you've taken uh those issues that you've had and and and, and just made it disappear uh through your own hard yeah. work I, and, and stuff like that i think even like in writing the talk i think that was the thing i realized i was just like what is the progression of like how i think about my place in the industry and i think there's like a big step between like thinking of the industry as like this thing that like takes or doesn't take you and that has all the power and you're just, you know, this weak thing that's, you know, hoping to be led in the gates. Um, and I think, you know, when you start thinking about yourself and what you want to achieve in the industry, that becomes like really empowering. But I think the next step is when you realize that like the industry is changing, but like 
I always like at the beginning, I feared that I was like, the industry is changing and they're going to leave me behind and it's going to be terrifying. And then you realize like the industry is changing because of people working in the industry. And I'm a person working in the industry. So if I know what change I want to see in the industry, I can be part of it. And I think that was a really big eye opener for me because I think up to that point, I was just always just like, well, wherever it goes, it's going to maybe it's going to leave me behind and that's going to suck. Um, and I know like, you know, single handedly, I'm not going to change everything, but like I can do my little part to make sure that there is a place for me in the industry and there are places for people like me in the industry. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do have a question from the audience. This is from Jaquil101. As a reminder, you guys can ask these questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is kind of, I'm going to make myself laugh like the whole <laughs> whole day. So, uh, so this is when you started your career in game development. Uh, had you had work prior in other types of software development? So I had two internships um, that I'd done. So like um, I was, I came straight out of college. So yeah, I, I took like my last final on the Friday and I started Insomniac on the Monday. So I didn't, didn't have any like um, proper professional experience, but the first I think two summers that I was at um, in college, I actually met a guy in my programming, uh, one of my programming classes that um, they, they basically, he worked at the games company and they were like, we need you to find us an intern. And he was like, I'm going to E3 next week. And I'm like, oh my God, how do you go to E3? And he's like, oh, if you work in the games industry, you can go to E3. I'm just like, can you get me in it? E3? And he's like, well, like if you come work with us, like in the summer, you can go to E3 next year. I'm like, let's do that. So I, I had like two, three months since, um, at two different games companies because that guy moved from one game company to another. So I think that was definitely like the big break for me um, was that I was lucky enough that that guy got me two different internships and like once you can see how the sausage is made like you can start adapting like the theory you have of programming with the actual industry version of programming um but then again like when i went to insomniac it was a whole other level like it was so much more complicated than anything i'd done in those two summers Awesome. Uh, this is a question from official Nebular Gaming. Do you need to have a degree to be called a game dev? <laughs> no, definitely not. Like, like you have to be able, like, I think if you're making a game, uh, you're a game dev and whether like that means downloading unity and, you know, playing a sample, like you're a game dev, like, I don't know, like you can call yourself a game dev no matter what. Right. I, I think that that's becoming increasingly more and more true. Uh, I think especially with um, the pandemic going around and uh, I don't even know how school systems are going to adopt into it. Uh, essentially, I, I think there was some some horror stories kind of kind of being spread where where a lot of these students were still being charged <laughs> while they couldn't go oh, no. to a physical school. And then they had like a really half-baked online experience in result of that mm -hmm. um i mean these are institutions obviously that that uh continues to to need the the income and uh mo like those businesses they they will crumble if suddenly the the source uh stops right so in a way i, I kind of empathize but in another you know i i went through like a traditional you know college education and i uh it took me like eight years <laughs> to kind of pay it back with like yeah. stable job income, right? Uh, yeah. It was insane uh, to expect that from from anybody um, to to kind of start their twenties and, and live through their twenties commuting and in in most cases like moving around the country and in your case yeah. your country different country yeah, um moving around the world <laughs> around the world and it's very common uh and it's just we're not set up in a way where i graduate from one campus and then across the street i can work for for the next 20 years i mean most industries aren't set up like that anymore but game industry especially i, I feel like you starting off your 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 career then that way can be very detrimental so um yeah i think you, you know for me the value of college was probably much more that like an 18 year old just isn't a mature human being um and like you know from countless perspectives whether it was social or like the way i thought about learning when i was 18 was i thought you memorized a bunch of stuff and i think the thing that college taught me um was that 
learning is actually linking other things, linking stuff to things you already know. And I think that was a shift that it took me, you know, my three years of college to figure out. Um, and if you can learn that in another way, great. But like, it's, you know, you, you need some time. And I think that's the thing, like, I talk about safe spaces to try things and to grow and to fail. And I think college can be that for a lot of people, but I think the industry should be able to do that as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not, I'm not anti-college per se. Like I definitely think, you know, there's value for some people in university. I think there's value for me in university. Um, like even just like being forced to do group projects was like a big turning point for me because I could code on my own, but like the idea of, you know, having my code mesh with someone else's code is a concept I, you know, I, I don't think I would have experienced on my own. Um, but again, it's another thing that hopefully we can, as industry, provide opportunities for as well. Yeah, especially now. I mean, I, I, I'm a big proponent to online learning now, but even with the forced quarantine, it, it gets pretty lonely, man. That, that social aspect of it I, I really valued when i was in college i made a lot of best friends for life through the experience being next to people and so even with all this generation of uh, uh developers who 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 are so used to living through social media um i, I think we pretty much value social interaction at this point i mean think i think if anything we've answered <laughs> yeah. it that yes we need physical interaction and online is not enough matrix yeah. until they get those like until valve kind of <laughs> get those index fingers uh with physical touch going uh it's just <laughs> not at that place where where we want to uh to kind of dedicate our whole life to that so i do have another question yeah uh, this is yeah. from Bewilder Beast. Is there a particular work ethic technique or discipline that you could talk about? Being the sole developer, how does how do you maintain discipline and focus when it's just you and a keyboard? So I guess the, clar the clarification there on Nights and Bikes, like I wasn't the sole developer. Like there was an artist. I was the sole programmer on the project, and like it's okay. He's I not here. You can take credit. <laughs> <laughs> I no, did everything. No, no, no I'm kidding. And like the yeah. easiest way to stay motivated is like if there's an artist, like just churning out beautiful art every day. And every time you hit like update from SVN, there's more beautiful shit for you to program. Um, like it's it's pretty easy to stay motivated um, in that situation. And like even at times when I remember there were some times where you know there was a bunch of work Rex needed to do. Um, that there wasn't much programming work for me to do. So I basically just jumped onto another project for I think two months and I shipped Subsurface Circular with Mike Bithel. Um, so I think, you know, I don't go to any like work ethic or any like specific, you know, paradigm to stay motivated. But I definitely think like finding collaborators that excite you and finding things that you want to learn that excite you, finding skills that you can find value in yourself, like those are things to stay motivated. Um, but also I think, you know, for me, like, again, it, it all comes down to like, if everything isn't rooted in the change I want to see in the world and like, you know, if I accomplish that change, like maybe I'll lose motivation, but like the world is moving so slow and there's so many things that need to be fixed that I feel like eventually whatever I'm doing is rooted in the change I want to see in the world. And I think that's never going to get solved. <laughs> and my motivation being tied to that, it's always going to stay somewhat full but i guess the other side of it is like how do you not burn out because that's a risk that i always ran into of like especially before my son was born it was just i work from home it's so easy to just keep coding and keep coding and keep coding um and i'd say that's more of the risk or more of the threat to me of just like burning out and just not wanting to do it anymore just because your body is just so sick of it um and i think if i didn't have my wife to remind me like this you know i would get to points where she would just be like just so you know like you're being really snappy and like you clearly are exhausted and you're working too hard like, just sounds like this morning for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you know she'd be there to like remind me that like i'm working too hard and i need yeah. to like find some balance just go outside and yeah Get some vitamin D, man. It's important, especially now. Yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, from Shadow Monarch One. He's asking, belonging uh, from India. He's from India, I guess. The game dev scene here is not too big. So how do I path that bridge between countries and get myself where I can even ask the do I belong question to myself? Could you tell me some of the ways I can check out the game dev industry? This is pretty, pretty relevant. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely difficult. I mean, uh, the short answer is it's not trivial because, I mean, I obviously there's a lot of things online. There's a lot of communities. Like I watch a ton of GDC talks. I, you know, watch GDUCs. Uh, I watch a lot of talks. I try and find communities online that you can interact with, but it's it's not a perfect substitute. Um, like it, it very much is just if you can't find anything physically local, like try and find something virtually local to you um, and try and find communities that will, you know, are at a similar level as you and where you can ask. Like one, one thing that I really like right now is like in the UK, there's a games industry slack. And so everyone in the games industry comes in and like you can ask the dumbest questions in the world and nobody's going to judge you for it. And I think that's, you know, it's the thing that I just keep coming back to is like there are enough safe spaces for people to learn and grow. And I think, you know, for you, what I would recommend is just start making a game and whenever you have a problem, start Googling answers. And hopefully at some point, Googling answers to the specific problems you have will help you find communities where those answer or those questions get answered on the internet. And that will, you know, hopefully, you know, be a beacon for you to start your journey, but it's, it's not easy. That's for sure. So this is actually a pretty good question that uh, I, even I am pretty curious about. So this is from Andreas Retina. So how's the game dev industry in the UK compared to the US? Are there any key differences? So I guess the the biggest thing for me, at least, is I feel like I, it's connected. So the salaries in the UK are way lower than salaries in the US, um, which sounds like a bad thing, but it means the game budgets are lower and the creative risk is higher. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why everyone in America in 2007 was making a shooter, because the budgets are so high that you have to do the lowest risk thing. And I mean, ironically, if you and everyone else are doing the lowest risk thing, it's really, really high risk. Um, so I think the UK industry, for me at least, it feels a lot more explorational and more uh, experimental because one, we have the NHS, so you don't have to, as a freelancer, you don't have to worry about healthcare or health insurance or anything like that. You, like, if you get sick, you will be taken care of. Um, but just that because the budgets on games are a little bit lower on average, like, I think there's more creative risk that's um, willing to be taken up in the UK. Uh, I also think that the UK has, you know, a great organization called BAFTA, um, and they really, as a culture, support games. And because they've been doing so much work to put games in the spotlight, um, like they have an award ceremony that just like the Oscar for games every year. And because, you know, they have everyone suit up in tuxedos and make it seem like, you know, we're professionals and this is an art form to be appreciated. I think there is more appreciation of the industry here. Um, where I think in America it's very commercial and very like um, a bit more jaded, um, especially when you get to the general population and the news media coverage and that kind of thing. So I think those are the big differences to me. But okay. NHS is huge. Like yeah. not having to pay, like when you literally are running an indie game company, a lot of times you're trying to spend zero dollars or pounds, period. And just the fact of like, if every time you don't spend money on health insurance, you're increasing the mental strain of what is the risk if someone is unwell, like uh, it's just, I mean, there's nothing that makes it harder to focus on creative decisions when you're putting your own life on the line. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, uh, I want to thank you, Mu, for uh, for coming on, man. It's been it's a great way to kind of kick yeah. off because you, your story especially is exactly why Ducks was was made in the first place i share a lot of similarities in, in your journey i mean i've had my my moments um even this morning you know uh with the stress and all my wife yeah, had to kind of like uh, take hold and, and like calm the f down <laughs> but these are moments throughout yeah throughout business that we we kind of figure things and uh and and try to move on and and, and just learn by by doing basically so before i kind of send you off uh if you don't mind to kind of uh, tell people out there how to find you and uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and just uh, make that make that apparent so that people can can find you on Twitter or, or wherever. Yep, cool. On Twitter, I'm one of Moo and it's on the screen. Uh, and recently we, we released Nights and Bites uh, on Switch, PS4 and PC. So pick it up and give me monies. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I want to thank you so much, me, for for coming on, man. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll, we'll talk some more, and uh, yeah, and that's pretty much it, man. Thanks for everything, dude. Awesome. Thanks. Later. Later. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are liking the podcast, go to the Apple iTunes store and give Game Dev Unchained a five-star rating. This will help spread the joy and love and exposure for the podcast, and we thank you very much. If you want to continue the conversation, go to our Discord, which can be found on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S. You want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at gamedevunchained.com. And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature, which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com forward slash blue champs this gives listeners a chance to kind of call in leave a message for both me and the guests to answer your deepest darkest questions and comment on your deepest darkest secrets thank you everybody